0: Among all my papers inserted in my Bible here, I will have some notes for this morning. I do. Um, Right. Last time that I was substituting for our brother, and do pray for Derek today there in Jamaica, but um, I just did, as they say often, a one-off little thought or study on the topic of depression. I hope that was it's helpful. It's something that I have seen in Scripture several different directions. And as I said that week, I had just been at a conference that week dealing with that and related topics. What I want to do today, uh, I hope I'm not being too optimistic. I just want to have a brief overview of the 20th century. That's, that's all I, I want to do. <laughs> um, I thought today I have a handout that I'm not going to give you uh, for... The purposes of uh, not having you to be distracted with this. I want to give this to you at the end or the latter part of the class today. But I was trying to think of um, the last times I've taught Sunday school. It's been a long time since I regularly taught the class. With my chronometer, it's always um, very sketchy trying to know when I did something. I do date my sermons so that I know when I preach them. And how long it's been and whatnot. But um, I wanted to do a little survey today. Not so much on the doctrine of separation. Though that's the handout that I've given you. I've given it out some years ago. A little pyramid illustration that I stole from my father-in-law. Tweaked a little bit. But uh, I guess it's one of the... Uh, I don't know if it's a benefit or a problem of getting older. Uh, you start thinking about um, young people. And I found this in the seminary. I'll mention something teaching. And uh, I remember years ago, I made mention of the Exxon Valdez. And there was just a sea of blank stares. And I got thinking, okay, they weren't born yet when that happened. That might explain the blank stares. Uh, I made a comment about Reagan one time. Oh, that's right. They weren't born yet when he was president. Uh, anyway, those type of things kind of start coming to your mind. So um, we use terms uh, at times when we talk about the church and different factions of the church. And I remember early in my ministry, we had a young couple visiting or young family that were with us for several years. And uh, the husband, father in that home came to me once after a message and said I had used some terms in the message that just went right right by him. I was using terms like fundamentalism, uh, evangelicalism, and um, he was a relatively young Christian. He and his wife had been converted as adults or as college students, anyway. And um, it just to me those were terms that were part of my currency. I could use. They communicated things to people. Then I came to realize that. Um, Some of those terms, uh, even among people that used them, uh, we might not always be working with the same dictionary definitions. Um, I'll have people, if somebody asks me, Reggie, are you a fundamentalist? My response, if I don't know the person, I don't know their background, they don't know me, I will say, how long do you have? Uh, Because... um, From a certain perspective, my immediate answer to that is going to be yes, absolutely. From another perspective, other issues involved, I'm going to say, well, um, no. Um, Well, which is it? Well, it's kind of that kind of stuff I want to talk about a little bit today. Um, Because for you younger people, um, you're interacting with more and more circles of influence as you get older. I know with the digital social media age you interact with those circles a lot earlier than you used to Um, which well we leave that to homes and parents and wrestling with all those things but I just thought it might be helpful because well people come and visit and they say grace free Presbyterian what's that mean Uh, does that mean it doesn't cost anything to come there or does that mean you don't have any grace you know salt free sugar free um What's free all about? Well, we have to explain a little bit of church history. Recent church history to explain the name of our denomination even. So I thought I'd just take a little time in Sunday school today to do a one-off on the different pieces of the church over the last hundred years and just kind of the trajectory that we see among professing Christians. So, I don't claim any originality or perfection in dealing with this, but I mentioned the doctrine of separation. A lot of the factions, a lot of the different groups that are among the church today, when I say that, I mean the church at large, all kind of different denominations. um, There were divisions since the Reformation uh, among Bible believers, Baptists and Presbyterians, Uh, were divided from each other because they had different views about church government. Is every church an island to itself, or should all the churches be connected? Um, Different answers to that question made the Baptist and the Presbyterian denominations. Congregationalists, similar to Baptists in a lot of ways, that are autonomous. More similar to Presbyterians in other ways, because they used most of them, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which kind of as a Presbyterian document. Then you could get into Methodists and on and on. And so there were different uh, distinctives. We talk about a distinctive. uh, That's a position that one group holds that might be unique to itself. Baptists have the distinctive that they think baptism should only be by immersion and should only be administered to those that are already believers. So they deny paedo-baptism, and they deny sprinkling or pouring as valid methods of baptism. Other orthodox groups obviously don't. So that's a distinctive of Baptists. Presbyterians, well, guess what? We get our title based on what? The word for elder. Presbyterian government is kind of what distinguishes Presbyterians from other denominations. Now, there are other denominations that use Presbyterian polity. Uh, a lot of the Dutch Reform groups, like Joel Beeke's group and some of the twin or twin cousin denominations to them among the Dutch Reform. They're Presbyterian in their structure. They use sometimes different words. They use the word classis. Uh, not classes like you go to class but classes is that one a you or an i it might be one i've heard a lot and never read um, you ever have that with words words that you've heard and then you read it for the first time you think remember the first time as a kid when i read the word facade what is that somebody told me what it was is it oh yeah okay uh, so anyway, but they use classes instead of like a presbytery or a session. Um, so, but they're basically Presbyterian. So these are various distinctives that different groups hold. But um, what I want to talk about today is the movement that is called fundamentalism, um, evangelicalism, came about in the 20th century for a particular reason. Um, In the late 1800s, round numbers, um, say from 1850, uh, the church began a period of real declension. Um, Now, if you were to talk to my dad, who's been with the Lord several years now, he would tell you, don't read anything that was written after 1850. Don't sing anything that was written after 1850. And he had other lists on that too. It might have been a little bit extreme. Um, But let's just say, by the turn of the century, and now I'm talking about 1900, there was a movement that had come into the churches that comes under the titles of liberalism or modernism. Maybe I should have made my list of terms and just quizzed everybody on these before we started. Everybody heard, I'm really getting toward young people, have you heard the word liberalism, modernism? What are we talking about when we describe a Christian, broad definition of the term, as a liberal or a modernist? Well, modernism, liberalism was embraced by the churches. It started in the seminaries because there were scholars that began to look at the Scripture and they began to use some of the tools, if you will, or the discoveries, if you will, of other disciplines, like the discipline of science that suddenly discovered evolution. Well, one of the pieces of modernism and liberalism that came into the churches was they applied the philosophy of evolution to their study of the Bible. Israel became a group of people, of course, that's where we got our Bibles, (laughs) that had evolved in their understanding of the world and of themselves and of God. I'm going to see if I can pass one of the test questions I administer here. What are the four supposed stages of Israel's religion? Animism. Worshipping animals and stuff. Polydemonism polytheism, then monolatry, that's the stage where you believe there are other gods, but you're only going to follow this one. And then finally, monotheism, that there's only one God. Well, I think I got them. Anyway, I'll check myself later. Um, But they apply evolutionary thought to Israel, the history of Israel's religion. And so these scholars began to go back and say, we're going to find evolution in the Bible, not just dinosaurs and all that, but the evolution of thought, the evolution of religion. And of course, there's a a premise underneath this that the Bible didn't come from God. It's not inspired. It's a product of human manipulation and the progress of human thought and human religion. So here's a bedrock truth that liberals, modernists introduced. The Bible's a product of men. It's not a product of inspiration. And if you want to find a watershed for modern declension, um, there's your watershed. When you take away the authority of Scripture, when you say what we have in our Bibles is just the product of the evolving thought of human writers, and then do we really believe Moses wrote all of these books? And did Isaiah really write his book? Are there two or there three Isaiahs? Um, Daniel gave the critics a real problem because he wrote about things that hadn't happened yet, and then they really happened. And so he's a particular point of assault because, well, obviously a natural book with a human author couldn't really foretell events that actually transpired. So it's just a given that it had to be written after it happened, and they just pretended to predict these things. This was the mindset that began to come into the seminaries. And so modernism, having that fundamental departure from truth, began to infect the schools, and then a generation later, it began to affect the pulpits and the pews. And so that set in motion what we have in many ways today a society that's crumbled because it surrendered authority. It surrendered God's word. It surrendered accountability. Um, you remember the emphasis these fellows have brought when we have the um, evolution creation scientists, the evolution, the creation scientists come and speak. Uh, if you abandon the principle, the truth of creation, that there is a creator and there are his creatures, well, then you eliminate accountability. And then you can go anywhere you want because there's really no God you have to answer to. So liberalism infected the churches. And the movement of fundamentalism then was a movement that was seeking to answer the challenge of liberal modernistic thought and teaching in the churches. So let's just say by the time we get to about 1930, um, it's become so bad that it's not just this church and this preacher are a little off. It's this this seminary is gone. Uh, the pulpits that have been affected by this school are Numerous, and it came to the point I'm wishing Hudson, will you do me a favor? There's a yellow book right there next to the plant. Can you bring that to me? And I'm looking for the namesake, yes, sir. That thank you, thank you. I was supposed to bring a book from my library today to show you, too. But, uh, how many of you guys have picked up this? They've been in the back. This is the 100th anniversary edition of a book called. Everybody's eyesight's better than mine. Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. I think this is, yeah, this is a Ligonier centennial anniversary of this. Boy, time keeps rolling. Um, We have this man's namesake that's usually back there on the Bowman Row. Machen. Uh, J. Gresham Machen was a Princeton scholar, a Presbyterian theologian, Princeton had been the Cadillac of seminaries. Uh, men even that weren't Presbyterian had studied there to learn the doctrines of the Scripture. Uh, Princeton, people talk about old Princeton. Uh, who's ever heard of the name B.B. Warfield? B.B. Warfield was one of the old Princeton scholars. If you take B.B. Warfield, <coughs> A. A. Hodge... Um, Charles Hodge, always get these crossed. A.A. was the father, and Charles was the son. son. Did I flip it? Yeah. A.A. Um, a. Hodge was named after a previous Princeton scholar, Archibald Alexander. Um, some of these men's books have been reprinted over the years by Banner of Truth. But B.B. Warfield's one of his real contributions was he defended the doctrine of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, he and A.A. A. Hodge were champions of that. That was kind of the watershed mark in church history of the contribution of Old Princeton. Well, Old Princeton was Old Princeton, and by the time Machen was teaching there, um, the old men had died off, and the school had really fallen to liberalism. So Machen... And his companions were forced, really, to take a stand. They ultimately separated. First, just from the school. And they formed a new seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, to teach what Princeton had previously taught before it fell to liberalism. But in that time, fundamentalism and evangelicalism were pretty much interchangeable terms. Those were words that were used for the branch of the church that still held on to what the church had always taught. In contrast to the modernists who were abandoning what the church had always taught. And again, once they abandon that watershed doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy, what we have in the Bible is a product of men. We can then find out why they said what they said, and why it doesn't apply to us today. I mean, you can apply this. This is a very useful tool. You can apply it to all kinds of things. You can apply it to, let's say, gender roles, and marriage, and just morality in general, and on and on and on. You can just manipulate your teaching depending on which way the wind's blowing. There's no real authority. Well it was to the point where when Machen wrote this book, he entitled it Christianity and Liberalism for a specific reason. He said historically Christianity is the religion of the Bible. There are key doctrines that define Christianity. Liberalism, what's being taught in the seminaries now, has abandoned and he goes through key doctrines, inspiration and inerrancy, Let's talk about uh, the virgin birth of Christ. Let's talk about whether the miracles really happened or not. Let's talk about whether we can trust the books of Moses or not. Well, what Machin concludes is, these are two different religions. We have Christianity and liberalism. But liberalism isn't biblical Christianity, although the men that are teaching this new religion... <coughs> still teach in Presbyterian seminaries. They still pastor Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches and Methodist churches. And so a separation had to occur in order to defend and really proclaim the truth. And so fundamentalists became called... Became called. That's really good. My mother would be cringing over here. started being called fundamentalists because they stood on the fundamental doctrines of the faith. There were doctrines that could not be denied without denying Christianity. And so that was the fundamentalist, modernist controversy. Modernists denied fundamental doctrines. Modernists, in Machen's definition, which is accurate, ceased being Christianity. So you had this watershed. And in a sense, the, 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 the dust had settled. They're two different views of Scripture. They're two different camps. We're going two different directions. Well, there we have fundamentalists, evangelicals, synonymous terms, and liberals. Now, fast forward another generation or part of a generation. Once you get into the 1950s, There was a division that occurred within the evangelical slash fundamentalist camp. Uh, There was a man named Harold Alkingay, uh, Boston pastor, trying to think, have a picture from back in the days where you carried cameras and you took film to get developed. Um, And you got things back days later that you could see. Oh, I took that picture. It's not very good. Can't take another one now. That was five days ago. Um, Anyway, I have a picture of Mark Allison pointing at a marquee outside of a church uh, with Harold Ockengay's name on the marquee. There were men in the evangelical fundamentalist camp that introduced a, a perspective that they wanted to maintain. They called themselves new evangelicals. And the distinction then came, uh, again, evangelicalism and fundamentalism had been synonymous terms. People that maintained the historic Christian faith and people that didn't. Now men that were among those that maintained the historic Christian faith wanted to change the emphasis a little bit and bridge the gap back toward their modernist, and here's where you get the definition, brethren. Well, Are they brethren or are they not? Yeah, there are people that were still saved, real Christians in these liberal churches, but there was a consistency issue. The doctrines that were being abandoned were critical to the faith. And so, yeah, you've got wheat and tares all mingled in. You've got wheat and tares in the fundamentalist churches too. But at least as outward teaching and profession, the new evangelical position was We're not going to maintain this strict line between the two camps anymore. We want to try and bridge this gap ostensibly to win the liberals back. And so we're going to begin working with the liberals again. We're going to invite them to speak for us. Maybe then they'll invite us to speak for them. Um, The evangelicals were a little embarrassed about some of the direction and the boisterousness of some of the fundamentalists, their lack of depth and scholarship. And there's a little truth in the the quaint saying of the New Evangelicals. When they looked at the liberals, they said, you call me scholar and I'll call you brother. Um, That's kind of a trite way to say it, but it communicates the atmosphere. There were a couple of avenues where the new evangelical thought uh, was really prominent. Uh, a, a new magazine was put forth, Christianity Today. It wanted to be a scholarly, respectable presentation of, well, Christianity Today. You always, I would never mind. I was going to say, you always think about people that title books today, like Charles Ryrie's published dissertation, Dispensationalism Today. Well, what was wrong with it yesterday? Christianity today. You mean there was something wrong with it yesterday? I digress. Um, anyway, Christianity today was a, an outlet for this mindset. And there was a Fuller Theological Seminary that became a focal point for Fuller had been an evangelical, fundamentalist, conservative response to the liberal schools that had abandoned the faith. But Fuller said, let's take this new direction. Let's bridge the gap. Well, in the process of time, uh, I should mention one other figure, Billy Graham, um, America's evangelist. Billy Graham almost came to personally personify the movement of new evangelicalism. Graham started out as a fundamentalist evangelist. If you were to get some old footage of Billy Graham preaching, uh, you would think you were at a Bob Jones University rally. I mean, he was a fiery, uh, hellfire, damnation, salvation preacher, uh, preaching the gospel. But in the 1950s, he embraced the new evangelical mindset, and he started using liberal churches in his campaigns. He didn't go to a city and just work with the Bible-believing churches. He said, let's, let's get the liberals on board with these meetings. As he progressed, he then began to embrace Roman Catholics in his evangelistic efforts. Now, if you understand, the people that are sponsoring the campaigns would supply the counselors for all the respondees to the invitations, and they would send them back to... sponsoring churches. So here you have this Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, evangelical who's using liberal, unbelieving ministers, and then ultimately Roman Catholic ministers. And ultimately, Graham even came to the point where he said, Jesus isn't the only way. Franklin has tried to walk that back in recent years. Um, But Anyway, that was the progression of Graham. He came really to personify the new evangelical mindset and movement. Um, So there's this division between the fundamentalists and the evangelicals. Evangelicals that were Bible-believing, what they taught was accurate, but they would fellowship and intermingle with those that didn't teach the truth. And so you had these different perspectives on... Separation. How do we distinguish ourselves from false teaching? If you look at Scripture, I started today talking about the doctrine of separation. There are really three key areas where the Scripture tells believers to be separate, to be different. <coughs> We're to be separated from the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're to separate from false teachers. Uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, what fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord hath he that believeth with an infidel? Um, and so to be separate and be distinct from false teaching. Then you press it even further. The scriptures also indicate that we're to be separated, to be distinct from disobedient brethren. There can be people that are actually brothers that walk in disobedience to the teaching of Scripture, that if they will not hear admonition, we have to ultimately walk distinct from them. So those are different layers of separation that we see. So in the mid-20th century, you had this new division. You don't just have liberal unbelief and scriptural belief. you got liberal unbelief, scriptural belief, and then those that believe the scriptures that say, well, let's still let's reconnect with the liberals. So you had that division between new evangelicalism, which is kind of an old term now. It's not really used very much. But you would have somebody that's an evangelical and a fundamentalist. Now I mentioned earlier, um, fundamentalism, somebody asks me if I'm a fundamentalist, I'm going to say, how much time do you have? Because the movement of fundamentalism that started as a believing response to unbelief in the church, um, as it evolved as a movement, now, stay with me here, we're starting to talk now about personalities, about individuals and particular ministries, and not so much about principles of separation and of belief versus unbelief. Once you get into the the mix of the personalities and the movement as distinct from the principles, fundamentalism began to have some problems. Evangelicalism, we'll see in a minute, had real problems, but the fundamentalists became sectarian. Um, They ultimately became almost absorbed or overrun by a particular branch of Bible-believing Christianity, which was the dispensational, non-Calvinistic version of Christianity. Most fundamentalists in our country and around the world today would have a dispensationalist, not Reformed, often easy-believism kind of heritage. Sometimes mingled in that, a little attitude with regard to how we interact with other people. Well, that's where I'm going to say, well, I am in principle a fundamentalist if you look historically at the division between modernism and historic Christianity. But there's a movement that has a lot of history and baggage that I I want to be careful about. And so there's that. There's another book I was going to bring and hold up to recommend to you along with Machen's book. Machen, Christianity and Liberalism, wrote about the divide between the historic faith and modernism as a new religion. There's another man named Ian Murray who's still living. He's quite elderly now. He was an associate minister to Martin Lloyd-Jones. So that's going to give you a little bit of his time frame. Um, Lord jones where was he on the spectrum? He would have been originally a mid-20th century evangelical, but some of the men, the conservatives in the Church of England, men like John Stott, um, J.I. Packer, some of these men that were with Lord jones influence, reintroduced to the Puritans and to Calvinism, and that kind of got the ball rolling for the revival of Calvinism after it had been abandoned for a hundred years. But a lot of these men were more of that new evangelical mindset, and Lloyd-Jones said, wait a minute, guys, you're heading the wrong direction. And there was a rift between those men, and Lloyd-Jones took the more conservative side of that rift. Uh, And like John Stott, I love John Stott's commentaries. Uh, He... Handles the word reverently and well. I love the way he thinks and presents organized material. But he was a leading ecumenical figure. When we use the word ecumenical, that's part of the new evangelical movement we've talked about. Ecumenical has a good sense and a bad sense. In the good sense, um, Bill Jones is not a free Presbyterian. We're very happy to support Bill's ministry, have him preach in our pulpit anytime we can. Pray for him. I just got their email the other day. He's just had back surgery. He's laid up for a good while. I think it's his second one, one a few years ago. But it's ecumenical of us to have Bill in our pulpit. It's ecumenical of Bill to have our young people come and be part of mission teams as they've done over the years. That's a biblical ecumenism. Bible believers that don't agree on every distinctive, yet working together. There's a compromising ecumenism where it says, you know, it doesn't matter if this church denies the inspiration of Scripture. It doesn't matter if they're pro-gay marriage, if they're pro-any other liberal tenet you want to put out there. We're going to work with them. That's a bad ecumenism. Well, Lloyd-Jones was fighting against the bad ecumenism, and Ian Murray wrote a book called Evangelicalism Divided, and it's a really interesting and well-done history of the second half of the 20th century and these fights among evangelicals. I was disappointed in one thing. I felt like Murray kind of gave a little bit of a short shrift, is that the right word, to fundamentalists um, kind of only pointing out the rougher edges of the fundamentalists I remember writing in the margin later he said something like because some of the fundamentalists had rough edges let's put it that way didn't mean that what they were talking about wasn't real Uh, and I just put finally in the margin there so if you read him you might have that in the back of your head But it's remarkable as he documents the devolution, if you will, of the evangelicals. It got to the point where R.C. Sproul said at a Legionnaire conference I attended back in the 90s, he said, we can't use the word evangelical anymore. It has been so watered down, it has been so misused, it's been so applied to people that don't believe the gospel, which is the evangel, that evangelicalism doesn't have the evangel anymore. He was arguing for a new word. He didn't want to use the word fundamentalist. He was tired of the label evangelical because it didn't mean anything anymore. He argued for the word imputationalist. Church history hadn't caught up with that yet and uh, we don't have an imputationalist movement. Uh, If they ever have one, I'll probably be a charter member because I like to preach on imputed righteousness. Um, But let me say this. In that rift between the fundamentalists and the new evangelicals, as fundamentalists, and big, broad-brush stuff here, drifted into sectarianism and infighting, evangelicals drifted into unbelief and some of the schools. I mean, there, there are men that have taught at Westminster that began teaching the same stuff that Machen left Princeton about. And some of the board of Westminster, I'm talking 15 plus years ago now, actually had to dismiss a professor um, because of complaints about his liberal teaching. But yet there were some on the faculty that wanted him to stay. A little side note. I was talking to one of the men that had been my supervisor for my thesis in Wales, which became the little book on the rapture had taught at Westminster. And he shared in class one day that when this fellow was on trial, whatever, by the board and ultimately dismissed, the faculty were polled as to their views of whether he should stay or go. The church history people and the systematic theology people said, he needs to go. The biblical theology people and the pastoral theology people said, he can stay. Just a little interesting footnote for people that think about such things. Church history and theology, we need it. Um, Where was I? Sproul, Evangelicals Lost the Evangel... Ian Murray's book, Evangelicalism Divided. Um, He got so bad in the Evangelical camp, and Sproul would, by Bob Jones standards, have been labeled a new evangelical. He was very friendly with Chuck Colson, uh, prison fellowship. How I many are old enough to remember the Nixon administration? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, now we're really getting back there for a while. I was a child. Um, but Chuck Colson was one of the heads that rolled uh, during the Watergate scandal. He was converted in prison. Uh, Hence the ministry he began, Prison Fellowship. He and Sproul were very close. Uh, But Chuck Colson, among the evangelicals, uh, was very keen to bridge the gap back with Rome. His wife was a Romanist. You could see some motivation in those quarters. So there were Romanists that were happy enough to work with Colson to bring this kind of thing about and the Evangelicals and Catholics Together documents of the 1990s. Chuck Colson was behind those. Well, here's R.C. Sproul, who's been happy to fellowship with Colson for years, but now he's faced with a dilemma, with a problem that's so clear. I mean, we're talking about undoing the Reformation here. We're not talking about, you know, um, even Billy Graham and Bob Jones senior or junior. We're talking about the Reformation. And he said, Chuck, no. We, we can't do this. And Sproul began writing, not only refusing to be a signatory on ECT and ECT2, um, he began writing against them. A uh, couple of very uh, significant books. Getting the Gospel Right is one of them. And I think the other one is just Justification by Faith Alone. I think that's the title. And to me, interestingly, if you put R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, the Southern Baptists that were part of the Founders Conference, and then Al Mohler and the recapturing of Southern Seminary in Louisville, there was kind of an evangelical resurgence among the evangelicals. And some of the evangelicals in the last 20 years have moved (coughs) Back to the right, because evangelicalism and the compromised position that was introduced by men like Graham and Akin Gay, the fruit of that was not we're re-winning the liberals. The liberals are winning us, and these men said, you know, this has been a lost cause, and so a lot of these evangelicals have been shifting back to the right, and that makes for interesting commentary today Uh, are they fundamentalists again now nobody wants that word anymore it's too embarrassing Um, but yet there's some principles there that are really necessary anyway we're out of time I have rambled has any of this been helpful to you young people you're nodding because you mean it or you're nodding because you want to get out of here? <laughs> yes. I'll take... No, we don't have time for questions. I'll take, I'll take a question, if there's any couple. I have introduced in a one substitute Sunday school class what you could spend a semester in, in church history and still not touch at all. But I just thought it would be interesting. So where are we? Historically... Free Presbyterianism is a fundamentalist denomination. It was not part of the fundamentalist movement in America, but Dr. Paisley and the separation of churches in Northern Ireland from the Irish Presbyterian Church, hence the title Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, uh, they took their title from the previous century in the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Uh, it was free for a different reason. The free of Scotland, like uh, Thomas Chalmers, McShane, the Bonners. Uh, They came out of the Church of Scotland, which was government controlled. You had uh, government connections, government money involved, all those type of things. And that was not going the right direction, so they pulled away and became the Free Church instead of the Church of Scotland. our group in Northern Ireland the free, wasn't free from government control. It was free from being associated with the liberal churches. Uh, we're going to stand with historic fundamental doctrines of the faith. So that's the movement out of which our North American movement branched. So now we don't have time for questions. Anyway, I won't give you my handout because I don't know if it'll make sense since I kind of talked about other stuff. If you want it later, I'll give it to you. We'll dismiss and I apologize for being long. So hasten to all that you need to do in between now and our service.